Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to part one of this bumper Q&A end of year podcast. So as regular listeners know, at this time of year what I normally do is ask people for their questions and their topics and then we chat about them in the, uh, a big end of year Christmas special type podcast. Uh, so I did that this year, we got loads of great questions, so I asked them for Facebook, via my email list, via my website, Twitter, that kind of stuff. I got loads of good questions coming in, uh, really, really good, really in-depth, thoughtful questions. Uh, some of them, obviously, where you're playing devil's advocate, some of them where you want me to clarify a certain point, uh, other things where you just want me to restate something or you're looking for clarification on things. Uh, questions were really good, you gave me a really good steer on what you were wishing me to, to talk about. Obviously, in the podcast, I've kind of summarised the questions a little bit, just to keep, for ease of listening, to keep them short and on point. Uh, but I know uh, what you were driving at, and therefore, obviously, I answer uh, along those um, along those lines. Uh, what I did was, when when I finished recording all my answers, it was three and a half hours long. <laughs> so I realised that that's that's no way I'm putting that out as a single podcast, not even two. So we split into three, and even then, each episode is going to be well over an hour long. So what I would suggest you do is listen to it in 15, 20 minute chunks because there's a lot of good information, I think, and a lot of good topics discussed. So it'd be nice uh, to listen to that in shorter, shorter bits, otherwise it'd probably be a little bit overwhelming. And what I also did was I divided it into sections. In, uh, not all of the questions neatly fitted into each topic, but I did my best to kind of divide it up. So therefore, as a listener, if you want to go to the self-defense part of it, specifically or the cat a part of it specifically you can do that so um we've got questions on teaching cat room bunkai impact drills self-defense training teaching children uh, female self-defense general karate questions cross-training questions pressure point questions and miscellaneous questions so in this first episode we're going to discuss uh, teaching questions cat room bunkai questions and impact drills questions and obviously in the next episode, which hopefully I'll get that out tomorrow, we're going to be discussing self-defense, uh, training, teaching children and female self-defense and, um, and so on for the, the third day as well. So I hope you find the, these interesting as, I, as I'm keen to get across. I'm not for one second saying that my answer is a definitive answer. Uh, I'm just simply giving you my opinion. Um, it's totally up to you whether you agree or obviously disagree. Uh, the only reason that I, I ask for questions is not because I believe I can give any definitive kind of answer, I can't. It's just that I hope that the listeners find my own personal take on these various topics. I hope you find them um, interesting and, and thought-provoking. So as I always say, this is the Ian Abernethy podcast, so you're going to get Ian Abernethy's views. And, and obviously it's a good and healthy thing. There are lots of different views uh, out there. So nevertheless, I hope you find it interesting. So uh, on the other thing, of course, is as I, as I try and do on the end of your podcast i try and drop a little bit of humor in uh, generally it falls way f off the mark <laughs> generally it's me that finds it funny and nobody else but I, I enjoy doing it so what i've done uh throughout this podcast and the next two episodes i've put some martial arts fun facts obviously they're all jokey that none of them are true uh it's just my attempt at humor uh, i'm not having a go at any particular style or anything like that you know i'm, I'm just trying to in my own uh, way trying to be amusing so don't take offense at any of them they're all jokey i even have a good joke at you know everything that i do in within them as well so yeah it's just supposed to be a bit of fun all right so this introduction's uh, probably long enough so i'll we'll start discussing the uh treat teaching part the teaching part's the first part of this uh uh podcast and obviously i'll be back with parts two and three uh tomorrow and the day after 
Martial arts fun fact number 79. Leaping kicks are frequently said to be used for kicking people off horses. However, this is questioned by absolutely everyone who has ever actually seen a horse. So we now have some questions related to like teaching or class structure, um, setting up training systems, that kind of thing. Uh, so the first one we've got is from Craig, which came in via email. He says, what advice would you give to someone like me on starting out with their first club from scratch? Uh, f- first things, you know, there's some basics I would always suggest is that you, you need to make sure you've got your professional indemnity insurance in place. Uh, if the part of the world you're in requires uh, criminal record checks, um, if you run the group, you, you need to get those in place. Uh, you need to get your first aid training done, that kind of stuff. You know, be professional about it. You know, have an ox- accident book, have your first aid to, to boxes nearby do your risk assessments all that kind of stuff so be pre-professional and unorganized from from the off the other thing is have a very clear idea of what kind of club you want to be and design your teaching syllabus uh, accordingly uh, don't try and be all things to all people which some people do you know they're desperate to get students through the door um, so what they do is they, they try and be everything to everyone and it never really works that way. Just accept that the kind of karate that you do may not be for everybody. So for example, we have students who maybe want to do competitions. They come to us. We don't do that. So they go somewhere else and that's fine. I've got good friends in the local area who do clubs that focus on competition and we can happily send them there. Uh, but if you want to do the kind of karate that we do, then we're happy to have you. If you don't, well, we'll send you somewhere else we'll point you to somewhere where that, that can help you and can give you what uh, give you what you want as well uh, so yeah carefully structure it make sure that you're teaching exactly what it is you want to teach um, help the students as well get them to see that, that there's a pro- progression there there's a logical structure to what you're doing walk them through the syllabus show them this is what the kind of thing we're going to move towards this is what we want to do now because people love feeling part of something that's that's organized and measured and that they can take uh, general steps towards uh, achieving um, a, a given goal and then of course to get people in you're going to need to um, to advertise uh, these days I, I think facebook is number one for those who don't know on facebook you can uh, set a location and you can say um, contact people within x number of kilometers of this location location so if in your town you just simply set up a, a facebook page for your club uh, i found that uh, head and shoulders videos where you're actually talking to people tend to be more uh, engaging than simple texts but you know it's nice to have a bit of a mix and then you say okay we're going to have a um uh, put that facebook page up promote the posts you can choose how much you're going to pay and for how long so you know say okay i'll pay 20 pounds for the next week and i want it within 40 kilometers of this given location uh, and it works really well uh, for the last few years that's the only way my club has been advertising is been on facebook and we've been getting people in on a, a regular basis we, we also we run it in like terms really so we start new beginners courses off on a regular basis and that works well too I, I, I don't personally like to have beginners coming in consistently because it, you've got new people starting from scratch all the time. It kind of slows it down a little bit. So we're taking a, a batch of people. We keep a waiting list. Once those people are up to speed and are joining the mainstream of the class, then we're taking another batch of beginners. Um, so we do that a few times a year. So there's you know some things to think about. But yeah, get all, get all the paperwork in place. Make sure you've got a clear vision of, of what you want to do. Make sure you've got your structure set up. Make sure the students are aware of that structure. And then effectively uh, advertise to get students uh, through the door. And I, I don't think you can do any better than Facebook. It's uh, the most cost-effective way to do it, I, I feel. 
The next question we have comes in from Aidan Cartwright uh, via email. And he said, uh, to what degree do you feel toughness or mind-body conditioning is important? And to what degree with respect to civilian self-defense should it be implemented? And Christopher Webb has a similar question. He said, uh, do you think there is a place for mental resilience training within the martial arts? What emphasis do you feel should be placed upon mental robustness in the dojo when considering that we all train for different reasons? Um, now, Aidan makes a point that he's observed super hard classes where relative newcomers were being effectively weeded out, you know, that they, they couldn't keep up, so were therefore leaving. And I've talked about this at the seminars. You get some clubs that, if on first glance, you'd think, man, this is an effective club here. The, the, the people they're producing are really tough, effective people. Now, now, sometimes it's not because they have a good training program, it's they have a good selection criteria, right? So what they do is people come into the dojo, they have ridiculously hard training, ridiculously tough training from day one the people who can already hack it stay there the people who can't hack it leave so it's not that they're producing tough people it's they're weeding out people that aren't already tough so it's not that they have an effective way of training far from it in fact we should judge a method by what it can do for our weakest or least natural student uh, not what it can do for our strongest student. So I, I do feel that there needs to be, uh, training needs to be arduous, but there are steps within that. If you think of anything, let's liken it to weightlifting, right? You, you wouldn't get a new beginner in, someone who's totally new to weightlifting and say, right, I've loaded up every single weight on the bar, just like that strong guy over there was using. Now I want you to do it. Oh dear, both your arms have kind of popped out. Never mind. Well, maybe weightlifting's not for you. you know, what you do is you say, right, what you can manage comfortably is this, so we're going to take it just beyond that. All right, and that's what we should be doing within the training. So that, therefore, we're not weeding people out, but we're still developing that that mental resilience and that toughness. Now, now, what could be a warm up for 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 us, you know, for for, for me, um, for people who've been training for a long period of time, could be an absolute gut busting training session for somebody else. You know, for someone who would think nothing of doing, you know, fifty press press ups, some people can't do one. You know, so so if you want to give the, the, the guy who's really fit a tough workout, you know, do 100 press-ups without stopping. You know, for the person who's relatively new, you might say, try one on your knees. You know what I mean? And, and, and in terms of relative hardness and robustness, they're doing the same thing. Re remember, for some people, just walking through the dojo door is a challenge, you know, to, to overcome that fear. And, and we should acknowledge that and we should reward them for that and give them well-dones for that and take them every single step of the way as, as they, they take this journey to becoming a stronger version of themselves. Uh, what we shouldn't do is, is exclude them just by making the training ridiculously hard. It should should be built up with regards to the second part of agent's question with regards to civilian self-defense it is very very important because fighting uh, self-defense in particular fighting is bad enough self-defense is a whole nother level is terrifying so, so you need that mental robustness to be able to overcome that, to be able to push through the the uh, the raw aggression, the terror, the fear, uh, the snarling ugliness of it. You know, we need to be able to push past that and and be effective within that context. We can't have it break us. So we need to develop stronger minds, and that leads us to the do side of things as well. The, the stronger mind in the dojo becomes helps us outside the dojo. I was talking with a, a training partner of mine last week. He says an entirely different guy to the guy he was twenty years ago. He says he's, he's, he's much more robust now. He's much more forceful. He will stand up for himself in a way that he wouldn't in the past. And again, this is because the training gets you used to doing that. Uh, and, and 
but for self-defense it's vital i know some people go oh it, fitness doesn't really matter for self-defense well in in terms of if the fight ends in the first two or three seconds you're right it doesn't if it drags on a little bit then then it may but 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 in terms of how do you mentally condition somebody well there has to be a physical element there i think it, it, extreme exhaustion and pushing yourself hard in training develops a kind of mental robustness to overcome discomfort that is relevant to self-defense training so all worthwhile martial training in my view should have discomfort and therefore it will have an element of fitness training within it uh, i think of the thursday morning sessions under peter constantine they are horrific as anyone who, whoever's done one of those will know uh, they are really really every single drill is intense and has people collapsing at the end of it and, and there's obviously part of that is for the physical conditioning but mainly it's for the mental resilience that just push and push and push and push that ability to override um those if you like the weaker voice the part of you that wants to quit and that's very relevant to self-defense uh, but again it has to be measured you know what i mean at the thursday morning sessions the average person in there is at least kind of i don't know 30 years 20 30 years training the average person in that room will have so training that way is entirely appropriate for people of that level it wouldn't be appropriate for a beginner um, and, and Christopher also asks, um, he said, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on some of the training methods out there uh, that are particularly good or bad tests of mental strength, um, i.e. breaking 30-man, 100-man kumites, or is mental robustness and resilience developed as a byproduct of hard training? Uh, where is the, the, the line between tough training and old-school savagery, you see? So, uh, I, I think all of those can be good. You know, Breaking, having the confidence to put your hand through a board and not hesitate. Can be a good thing. A Thirty-man, hundred-man kumites are also really tough things. Um, you know, just your ability to suck up pain and keep on going. But but again, to me, it's largely just um, a byproduct of hard training. You know, but it always I find it a little bit odd when sometimes people have like fitness components um, to their training i think well all of it should be getting you fit i don't need to get my students to sprint up and down the dojo because the lungs have been tested severely when they're sparring and doing pad drills and doing kata all of it's hard it will be a byproduct of high training i can understand you might want to add in some fitness elements for fun or to round things off you know but um generally it'll be a byproduct of hard training too and the terms of the line between tough training and old school savagery that's the point it needs to be appropriate to everyone within the dojo so if everyone is pushing themselves if everyone is outside of their given comfort zone then we should be giving everyone you know well done you we should be supporting them that we shouldn't be saying to the the ones that are less gifted or less naturally able or less physically fit um look you can't keep up with the fittest guy in the room therefore you know you can't hack it and you should leave it's it, the perceived levels of exertion are entirely different you know, I feel quite strongly about that as well. I know, like when I, when I'm in the gym and stuff, it, the, the, I always have the greatest admiration for the for the, the the fat guy or the fat girl who's in there for the first time, the person who's never done any physical activity before and is stepping in there, the person who's on the treadmill walking for three minutes and then sweat is pouring off them. I've got more admiration for them than the gym rat who's been there for years who just has a super tough session because it's just what they do. It's easy for them. The, the the people who you know it's not what they do and it's the first time they're doing it they're the ones i've got the admiration for and as martial arts instructors i think they're the ones we need to support as well the, the people who need our help most um and, and again we, we condition them by just moving them step by step by step outside the comfort zone when they grow and they adapt and they become comfortable with it we go right next step we're now moving on to this thing here so yeah there would be my my thoughts on on that one so uh, Ali Wittick uh, asks me, he goes, what's my ideal size of class? 
bearing in mind you manage extremely well to get around lots of people at seminars. So that's very kind of Ali to say. Uh, it, it depends on what you're teaching. So with beginners, for example, uh, I generally like one instructor, and it's normally one of our senior instructors, so it's um, third down or above. Uh, we, it's, typically, it's me. I, I tend to do most of our beginner sessions. Uh, or Murray, so the, t- the two uh, highest grade at the classes tend to do the, the beginner sessions. Uh, and I'd generally like it uh, one instructor to five beginners. I think it's, it's pretty good for us. That's how, how, how we like it. Can do more, you know, don't lately like to go above 10 because beginners need a lot of personal attention. So I, ideally that would be the size for that. When I'm running the mainstream class, I generally like it somewhere between about 20 or 30. Uh, 20 is nice because you get um, a nice uh, mix of different body types for people to train with. Creates a bit of an atmosphere. Uh, when you're getting above 30, it's sometimes difficult to get around each other. Again, I'm lucky that we've got other instructors in the class that, that help me too, you know, that, that, um, so that, that helps. Um, so yeah, for my general class, that would be it. For seminars, generally at seminars, you're talking about giving in information to people who are already quite experienced. Most of the people at the seminars are generally Dan grades. And if they're not Dan grades, they're generally Q grades paired up with Dan grades. So seminars, typically I tell people I like about 60, you know, um, cause I understand, you know, People have to meet costs as well, and I think 60 crates for a nice atmosphere, and I'm, I'm able to get around everybody with 60. I can stand back and see everybody and see if there's any generic faults and get around anyone who's having any issues. Uh, I mean, I have done more. You can do more, but I think once you get higher, I mean, I've done seminars with 200-plus people in the room, but while they're quite nice for atmosphere, I, I never find them that satisfying to teach because when I finish, I think there's people in that room that I never got to talk to. And I think if people come to seminars, the reason they're doing it is because they want that interaction with you. They want to get the details of it and they want to get the nuances of it in a way that you can't from a podcast, an article, a DVD or a YouTube video. You know, So I, I think um, that's generally it. So in terms of class sizes, beginners are like five beginners to one senior instructor. General class sizes, 20 or 30, I find. Seminar sizes, I don't really like to go above 60. Um, saying our everyday classes, uh, if there's a lot there, then sometimes we'll, I'll make use of the downgrades too. So I'll, they'll train, like if I'm running them through Catter and stuff, and we'll have people drop in and out, and then I'll get black belts to pair up with lower grades for certain things because that helps them too. So there's ways and means around it if you've got bigger numbers than I can personally deal with. But yeah, but that would be it. Five for beginners, general between 20 and 30 in your average class, and round about 60 is a, a maximum for seminar sizes. Although you can cope with higher, but generally that, that's, that's kind of what I, I personally prefer. Next question from Jason Kiefer. He said, if you had to teach someone kata-based sparring uh, from beginner to black belt, uh, what drills would you recommend and in what order would you teach them? So, uh, I mean, I, obviously, that's what I do. We have our uh, white belt sparring. But it goes back to the points we've just been talking about in terms of uh, mental resilience and conditioning. And for the sparring side of things, we have to acknowledge that what's fun for us could be terrifying for someone who's a new starter. So my beginners, uh, they do four um, drills, four sparring drills. Uh, drill one is they hold on the uh, the back of the neck with one hand, the forearm with the other hand because their partner's got the same grip. So basic neck and forearm grip, uh, tilt the head to one side, and they move around with the partner. That's it. That that's it. So that's a sparring drill, but they're just getting used to moving. Then they'll after so long they'll change and they'll grip on the other side. Second drill they do is they go uh, like the underhook from one side under the arm onto the back, grab the back of the triceps. That kind of standard wrestling grip. 
they'll hold the partner in that way, the partner's holding them in that way at the same time, and they move around. That's our second drill. Our third drill is playing for grips. So they basically just uh, uh, grapple, uh, just trying to get various gripping positions, not with any real objective or winner and loser in mind, just to get them used to the sensation of uh, grappling with someone who's close in. And then the other drill they do is a partner throws uh, straight punches at them, while, um, like jabs and crosses, while they parry in. So the, my left hand would be parrying my partner's right and vice versa. So they'll be blocking straight across, knock, knocking the hands inwards. And that's it. They're the, the four basic drills. When, when we take it up to the next level, we're now adding hook punches. So for the next grade, the partners are now allowed to throw hook punches as well, which they generally encourage them to cover. So parry the straight punches, cover the hooks, you know, bring the arm back and cover. Uh, for the grappling drills, they now try and uh, grapple for each other's backs as well. Uh, we have uh, them doing a drill where they have to stand still, where one throws punches uh, and the other one parries. The reason we get them to do that one is it gets them used to like uh, bobbing and weaving. Because they're not allowed to move the feet, then their upper body evasion has to get better, so they get better at moving. And, th and that's generally how we do it. So at every single step of the way, we just add in the, the next, uh, just take it up a notch. Um, um, so for example, you know, a couple of grades up from that, we'll say, right, we want you to spar now and you can punch and kick, but you're not allowed to grab. And then we say, okay, now you can grab and you can punch and kick from within the clinch, but only one of you can do it. And one of you's got to try and smother the techniques for the next grade up. Okay. You can punch, kick and grab and everyone can do everything for the next grade up. We now say, oh, and now you can throw them and you can take them down the ground as well, but they'll have already done some ground fighting, but it's done separately. So, so basically, by the time they hit kind of uh, first queue level, they're doing um, all kinds of different sparring drills. They're doing all-in sparring with locking, throwing, submission, the fighting in the, on the ground. For, for the ground fighting side of things, the first drill we have them do is we get them into various holds and we just pressure test the hold. So you say, hold it, get a scarf hold, and then your partner's going to, the phrase I use is, wiggle like a dying fish. <laughs> so they just basically thrash about as hard as they can for 10 seconds and hopefully you can maintain the hold. We then do, uh, they've got to fight for holds, we then start, okay, they've got to escape from holds back up to their feet, we then add in, okay, you've got to strike from holds in various positions, uh, they've got to get submissions from various positions, lots and lots and lots of different sparring drills. But the, the key thing is that they start basic, and then with every single step of the way, we just, okay, add the next layer in, add the next layer in, add the next layer in. So the student develops competence and confidence. And then what that means is that they enjoy it, the, the, the growing in skill and ability, and the injury rate is remarkably low too, because no one's getting overly excited and trying something crazy. People don't get hurt because they're, they're confident of their ability to, to do what it is that we, we need to do. So uh, There is a, a podcast on this as well, if you search it again way back when, but there's one, I think it's called Catabase Sparring on Structure. And that goes through the kind of specific drills that we do and how we do them. Yeah, but that's the key. Build them up gradually. That, that, that's that's the, key, the key thing. Um, and start as basic as you can. And then at each level, you just add on the next, uh, the next stage. So people grow in confidence and competence. And the final question we have in this section is from John Brinder. So he said that many pragmatic martial artists are doing a great job of incorporating bunkai-based drills into their training and teaching. However, what do we do to ensure the syllabus does not become bloated and unfocused? For example, a bit of pad work, a bit of kata, a bit of grappling, but without studying uh, these aspects in enough depth. And, and, and that's, that's absolutely a, a very important point. And I see that happen a lot. And the key is integration. 
is everything needs to support everything else. So the Keon informs the cutter, which informs the bunkai drills, which informs the pad drills, which informs the two-person drills, which informs the sparring. All of it's interrelated. It all comes together. And we're not practicing them all as separate disciplines. And I do see some try and do that. So they go, oh, so if I'm going to be practical, then I need to do some grappling, some pad drills, some, and as, as John points out, they do a little bit of all of it. It's all entirely disjointed. It's not well structured. And the, the, the generally, that, that works against their own interests because they're not developing any element to a high enough level. So the key is, is, is integration. Uh, so we have a few people who like to visit our dojo to see how, how we do it. And very quickly you realise, oh yeah, that's how it works. I see that. So we'll do a bit of Keon. And the things that we do in Keon, we then take onto the pads. And then, okay, the same things you can see in the Bunkai drills, which you can see in our self-defence-based drills, which you can see in our live drills. It, 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 it's all uh, integrated. So it's not like if they're doing the pad drills, they are also practising things that they will find in their Bunkai, their sparring and their Keon. It, it's all there. So the, the key is integration. Um, and, and remembering, and I think this is a, a bit of a problem we've got to watch out for, that developing high quality technique is really, really important. It's not enough to just tick the boxes. To say, oh, well, I've done a bit of pad work and a bit of grappling and a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, we need to make sure that the level of the technique is, is highly developed. Because I have seen some who, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we do practical karate. And then I'll watch them do the their techniques. Man, your technique is really bad. So you're trying to mimic practical karate without developing the high-quality technique within it. So it's not just about increasing the quantity of what you do. It's the quality of what you do and integrating it all together effectively. And then also making efficient use of your training time as well. So a while ago, I used to put uh, on Facebook what we'd done in classes in that given night. And a common question would be, man, how long are your classes? So I'd do things, you know, tonight we did a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of that, and we did all this, and then people go, man, you know, classes must be three hours long. But they, they don't understand how we structure them. So, for example, when we warm up, we normally warm up with combative techniques. So it's not uncommon to say, okay, we'll warm up, okay, grab your partner, gently start playing for grips, and then we'll work some striking in, and we'll do a little bit of kind of shadow sparring as part of a warm-up. We're not just running around doing star jumps and stuff. So already they've done some grappling and some striking before we've even finished the warm-up. You know, that, that's the the key thing you get it all integrated um uh, together so it all fits together if you teach kata then we do the bunkai right alongside it then they're not uh, taught as, as separate disciplines it's all integrated together so the key is integration and um because there are problems if we don't get that in place so that's um a good uh, a good point that, that john raises and i, and I think it's a, a very important one for the practical karate community to ensure that you're teaching systems and not a bag of tricks and that system is implemented in an holistic way again not in disparate parts that are entirely unconnected in practice martial arts fun fact number 12 while often mispronounced as karate in the West, those who believe fights can be won with pronunciation are very keen to point out the value in saying karate instead. So, as you would probably expect, we had a lot of questions relating to uh, Katra and, and Bunkai. And the first of these is from Louise McCree. It came in by email. And she said that some say a kata only has one use and any deviation from that is wrong. Does application of kata only have one use or can it have many different interpretations? Now, I think we can be confident that when the kata was created, it was created to have one application in mind. You know what I mean? So that, that, that will have been the case. Now, of course, 
a lot of those applications have been lost and in the last kind of whatever it's been 20 30 years we've been looking at the cat uh, trying to analyze them and trying to understand what's been been going on so we've kind of reverse uh, engineered them you know so my, my own view that in this day and age we can't say that the cat only has one application because there are many different competing theories as to what any given movement represents i do think it's important uh, as i said in the karate 3.0 podcast that any given group knows what the application is for that move so when people say oh we don't know what the applications are my response is i do i know exactly what the applications of the cat are because we teach them in our dojo we we teach alternatives to as secondary applications but the application which for us means this move means this this is what it means uh, we have all that laid out and set out and i think any school needs that too it's no good if it's too open-ended so well the move could be this or it could be that or it could be the other students don't need that they need to know it's this and this is what we want you to do and this is how it fits within the wider training matrix so i would suggest that the kata today can have many interpretations but probably historically it'll have had one in mind uh, that doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all though. So my, my three key tests for any application are uh, it needs to be true to the cutter. It's no good if we radically alter the cutter to get the application to fit. It also needs to be in accordance with what the old masters said. So the old masters gave us a lot of advice on the nature of cutter, what stances represented, what the angles represented, all this kind of information, this historical information. And it shouldn't be at variance to any of that. And above all else, it should work in actual real-world self-defense. So if it fits the cutter, it's true to what the old masters said about Cutter and it works in real world self defense, not in compliant karate versus karate choreographed battles. You know, forget that. But if it works against an uncompliant opponent within a self defense context, then it's right. Those are the three things. So, as those have been the seminars, now I liken it to science, right? So, when science comes up with a theory, it never says, uh, This is definitely the definitive answer on this topic. What they say is, this theory explains all of the data we have, and crucially, it can make exact predictions. So, for example, scientists still aren't sure how gravity works, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's still questions around that. Um, but it, that still doesn't stop them from flying planes and satellites and sending probes into deep space. They know enough about gravity to go, well, this theory explains all the data we have and crucially we can make predictions with it so if you have a cutter theory and that explains all the data so it's true to the nature of the cutter and it's true to um the nature of civilian self-protection and it's true to what the old master said about cutter you know and and it works you know it, it, it gives predictable results then we can say that theory is correct so there can be many competing theories as to what a cutter represents um but the uh, you choose the one that suits you best you the one that you think yeah if i had to bet money on it this is what i believe the original application uh, is then run with that as your primary application and then by all means be open to other interpretations of the cutter um in case someone has an idea they think you know that's better than what i was doing you know, I'll, I'll make that my primary um but we should definitely have our own this is what the the, the application means to, to us we should definitely have that in place next question is from mike hardy which comes by email and it goes why are there different versions of the same kata by that i mean that even within the same styles sometimes they have completely different elements to each other see and that's true you know people talk about the shotokan version of the kata or the goju version well which goju because there's many different variations or subsects all of which are claiming or most of which are claiming to be the the true one with everyone else having it wrong uh, and, and the reason is, is i think that's just the way that people are it's quite natural for people to put their own uh, take on things and bizarrely traditionally it's always been that way you know the cutter were passed on and they were tweaked a little bit and 
and changed a little bit, and then they were passed on, they'll be tweaked and changed a little bit. Uh, and I think that's fine. That's natural evolution. If the cat has been changed uh, to better fulfill a given application or because an instructor's got certain ideas, I think that's fine. If it's been changed because of for forgetfulness or simply because, well, this will look cool, then they're not good changes. But it's quite natural to have these changes. Um, it might be nice to think of them being as one pure version, but that's never been the case. So the reason we have lots of different variations of the cutter is it's human nature, and that's always been the case. And it doesn't mean just because a group uh, does the cutter different to you, it doesn't mean that they're wrong or you're wrong. If their cutter is giving them uh, the body control they want, the exercise they want, and serves as a good template for their bunkai or two-person self-defense drills, then their cutter is working for them. And it doesn't matter if your version of the cutter is a little bit different, so long as it's still fulfilling all those uh, criteria. Martial arts fun fact number 679. A chishi is a stick weighted at one end that is often used for conditioning in many forms of karate. The word chishi roughly translates as could only afford one plate for the dumbbell. Uh, the next question we've got is from Mark Fagan, and again this came in by email, and Mark asks a, a series of questions. So he said, um, I've heard you say on many occasions that the kata is a record of combative principles. Given the vast number of kata out there, do we need them all? Uh, no, you don't. You, you, as an individual, you, you don't need them all. Uh, if you've got one kata that you fully understand the combative principles of, uh, you're, you're golden, you've got it. Then from there, it's just variations and differing expressions of those principles. Where learning other kata can help you is it can give you alternate expressions of those common principles. So I always liken it, it's like looking at the same thing from a slightly different angle. So learning more than one kata can give you uh, extra insights into the way the common combative principles are expressed. But you certainly don't need them all. You you definitely don't uh, don't don't need that. You just need, it's better to have a, a smaller number, I think, that you study in depth. Now, of course, we, we don't want to be the generation that culled a load of kata either. So it may be that you'll practice a kata going, I've never analysed this, I don't know what it represents, but I, I can faithfully do the solo template and, and you say the only reason I'm doing this cutter is to preserve it uh, and then you may have cutter that you've, you break down in more depth and I think that's fine too it just really depends on what your, your training objectives are so no you don't need a vast number of cutter um, having, a, uh, having one is enough having more can help uh, having an excessive number where you're not getting to the, the heart of the matter, it can be a distraction. But kind of having um, a, a number of cut that you do, but to different degrees can be fine. You know, so this is the one I really look at in depth. Um, a little way from that, these are the ones I look at in a little bit less depth and I mainly use them as alternate expressions of the core principles from the core cutter. And then you've got others where, you know, this is one that I do just to preserve it and keep it alive for subsequent generations. I think that's fine. And then Mark also asks us, uh, are the cutter out of date given society and its hazards are different now? Uh, or have the, uh, the, the, the nature of violence remained constant? Well, I think it's remained constant. Because, or largely constant. The way that violence happens is primarily down to our physical bodies and our emotional nature. Uh, our, our hormonal systems and the way that we're built. You know, so it's not like we've grown a third arm and now have a, you know, or a tentacle, so we whip them with a tentacle now. We still punch them with fists in the way we, we did. We've still got elbows, so we hit them with those. Uh, that doesn't change. So I, I think old cutter are the same. There's some things that can change. So laws can change and fashions can change. So we, we may not be doing techniques where we're grabbing people by the top knot anymore. 
you know, as a, hipsters are bringing it back, right? You know, <laughs> those those man bun techniques are coming back, right? But but again, most men wear the hair short now, you know, um, and so those techniques where you, you're grabbing this top knot, you can argue they are no longer as valuable, so we may need to make some adaptations. And laws can change. So, for example, is a, a stamp to the opponent's head within Nahanshi, uh, when a flawed opponent's head. Uh, when I, we do that with my students to say, this is what the kata shows, we're going to stamp him in the thighs because the laws of the land are such today that we don't want to do that. You know, We don't, we don't want to be stamping on a guy's head. So I, I don't think that the kata is out, outdated. I don't think things have changed as much as people think. Um, combative sports can evolve a lot, and I think people get that mixed up. So if you like MMA is relatively new so that can make people think that martial arts have radically altered and of course if you change the rules of any given combat sport overnight what works can change so for example 10 years ago leg grabs worked really well in judo then overnight they said you're not allowed to do them anymore so they don't work anymore so that's changed but if you're talking about self-defense within a civilian context um, physically that hasn't changed much criminals still act the way they act and when we fight that's largely determined by our physiology so I don't think a modern series of cutters is needed but but Mike also asked if we did make modern kata how would the karate world accept it and, and I think the, the answer to that is that they probably would uh, not accept it very well I think with modern kata they would probably say oh, that's modern and we want the traditional kata but I, I don't necessarily think that's valid if somebody created a kata today there's good martial arts today just as there were good martial arts back then and if a person is able to create a solid kata which fulfills all the objectives, it, it does what you need it to do, there's no reason why that can't sit along the traditional ones. And there's no reason why Karateka should give it any less uh, reverence just because it's new. If it works, it works. Of course, the next question from that is, you know, have I created a kata or what I think of creating a kata and I, I do some, I, I do have a couple of kata that I've created for enjoyment and for my own purposes, but to be honest, I think the traditional kata serve my purpose. So it, go, it goes back to the point is they, they do what I need them to do. Cr criminal violence hasn't altered, so that they're, they're fine. So I see no need to create new ones to override the old ones. The old ones are just fine. But I would have no problem with anyone else who said, I want to create a, my own new modern kata. More power to you. You know, that, that's a, a good thing to do. And again, if it's effective and it's working, then it's every bit as valid as the traditional ones in my view. Uh, the next question is from Daryl Foster, and, and Daryl asks, uh, do I think people should learn cutters from outside their core system? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, it goes back to the, the earlier point. I don't think you need to, but I think it can be very valuable. So one of the requirements we have in my grading syllabus for students from third dan to fourth dan, uh, they have to learn a cutter from another style. Uh, be able to perform it on the, their grading test and be able to break down all the bunkai to it as well. And the main reason we get them to do that is to avoid style snobbery, where, you know, our style's great and all other versions are bad. To be, everyone who's done that with me, they've, they've all not wanted to do it. They've all, why do we need to learn another kata? The kata we've got are good enough as they are. But having learnt the other kata and then broken it down, they've all found it to be a valuable process. So I, I think learning kata from outside your core style can be useful because what you realize is there's one karate 
there's many different expressions of it, but there's one karate. So I can look at the, the katas of Shotokan and I can see commonalities in application with the katas of Gojuru or Wadaru or Shitoru or whatever else style you want to think of. So uh, I, as I say, I regard myself as a karateka. I, I don't have a style anymore. I'm, I'm a karateka. And therefore, if anyone um, has an interesting kata, then I'm happy to look at it and break it down. And if I like it, I'll make it part of my practice. But we have a, a requirement, a grading requirement that people should learn katas from the core system. Of course, it's quite high up. So, you know, if you're a, a yellow belt or a Q grade, you might want to concentrate on the kata within your style to start with. But once you've got those ones down, I do believe there can be value in, in going out there and learning uh, karate kata not from within your core style because it helps you understand what karate is. And it's fun too, right? So that's good enough reason to do anything. Uh, next question is from Tony Smith. This comes in by email as well. He goes, uh, do you have any knowledge of the kata Gankaku Show? And do I have any idea of the background of this kata? Uh, so there's obviously Gankaku, uh, which is the Shotokan version of Chinto kata. And of course, there's a few different variations on Chinto kata. Uh, so Gankaku Sho, as I understand it, is Kanazawa's Shotokanization of some of those alternate versions of Chinto. So if you, if you were to, uh, Tony, if you were to look at uh, Matsubayashiru's version of Chinto, you'd see it's very similar to Gankaku Sho. So is the, the, the Matsumura Chinto, you know, Kayan's version of Chinto. The Tamari no Chinto of Shitoru is also very similar to uh, Gankaku Sho, uh, whereas their Chinto is more like their Gankaku. So the, the basic is Gankaku Sho is Kanazawa's Shotokanization of one of the other versions of Chinto that's out there. So you've got a few different versions, and, and Kanazawa has felt that you know, we'll have one version as Gankaku and another version as Gankaku uh, Show, which, again, seems entirely reasonable thing to do for me. But that, that, check out those versions, and you'll see it's pretty much the same. It's just Gankaku Show. Obviously, the motions have been adapted to look more like uh, Shotokan. So uh, Christopher Larson uh, asks, um, he said, I'd like your opinion on the Korean forms. He says, I come from a style that does 90% Korean forms and 10% Okinawan. In your opinion, should I drop the Korean forms and learn more of the Okinawan Japanese? Um, in what I know of them, most of the Korean forms seem to be just the pinan kata that have been chopped up, rearranged, and given a new name. So it, it really depends which version of the Korean forms you're talking about, too, because th th there's some uh, Korean forms where they're just v variations of the Okinawan and Japanese forms that are instantly recognizable as such. So um, I, I know like a lot of the Tangsudo katas are like, like that, the Tangsudo forms, that are effectively just subtly altered versions of the, the Japanese and Okinawan ones. You know. Uh, but of course, there are some Korean forms where they, they, they do look like um, somebody's taken a pair of scissors to the old cat or chopped them up and then stuck them back together again in a uh, rather disjointed way. I, I, from, for me, I, I don't think it's not what forms you do, it's how you make use of those forms. If your Korean forms, if the ones you're doing do feel like chopped up, rearranged ones, but you're enjoying doing them and that they provide uh, a value for you and they make you uh, able to communicate with your larger martial family, then keep doing them. And, and I see nothing wrong with ex when you break the bunkai down, explain to students, okay, this movement finds its origin in this kata and is applied like this, whereas this next section finds its origin in another kata and it's performed like this. It, it's largely down to how you break them down, I think, not really which forms you're doing. So if you, if you like the Okinawan forms more, then do them. But if you like the Korean forms more and that's what your group requires, requires of you then I'd, I'd see no reason why you couldn't keep doing them you just make effective use of them you know and, and i see i know lots of korean stylists who do that too 
so they, they stick with the, the Korean forms as they were taught them but have no problem teaching workable self-defense off them because of the, the, the way they approach them you see so um, that yeah that would be uh, my um, thoughts just on that generally as well we do have a Korean form section on my website we have a um, on the forum there's a, a, a subsection entirely dedicated to the analysis of the Korean forms and, and it's not as active as I would like it's generally one of the quieter sub forums on my website so if you're a, a Korean stylist and you've, you you like breaking down the Korean forms and you've got more to say on them then uh, please consider you know joining the forum and making an active contribution there and I don't know if Christopher's uh, been on the website I, I think as I remember from his email he said that he had uh, but if again if you, you hadn't then have a look on there and you can see some some good stuff being done with the Korean forms on on the forum there so the next uh, question we have comes from Pierre-Alain Chabot. Uh, like, again, I, I was not allowed to take French at school because I was that bad at it. They stopped me from studying French. Uh, you're talking to a man who was banned from studying the language, right? So um, I, I'm absolutely sure I've just butchered your name there. But as I read it, Pierre-Alain Chabot, something like that, okay? I'm sorry if I've mispronounced it. But he, he wrote to me uh, by an email and he was saying, I was rereading Karate Do Kyohan. And, and Funakoshi wrote about the origins of katas. Uh, some of them are shoriru, others are shorinru. And, and, and he said that both schools have different views about hardness and softness of the body and the mind. And he asked, that, do, uh, do you think we should consider these kat, uh, origins into account in our Bunkai Jitsu process and apply it to the old uh, related schools and principles? Well, the answer is no, is because Funakoshi does indeed say that. That there's uh, the shoriru katas and then the shorinru katas. And he said that one suited to short, heavy squat people and one suited to light thin fast people and both uh, Miyagi and Mabuni came out and said that no such distinction ever existed in Okinawa where certain katas were designed for certain body types so this seems to have been something that Funakoshi said that his peers uh, rejected and said that's just not true uh, I, I don't believe it to be true I certainly don't see that when I analyze the katas from that that uh, along those lines I think what Funakoshi is doing there is he's uh, and there's questions about this later on in the podcast. Uh, but Funakoshi was a brilliant politician. You know, he without him there would be no karate today. He he was the guy who knew what needed to be done to get karate out to a wide audience. And part of what Japanese uh, martial artists expected from any legitimate Japanese martial art was styles and a lineage that went back in history. So this is why you know we've got this idea of oh yeah there was three original styles of karate: uh, Nahate, Shurite, and Tamarite. Well, it's just nonsense. They just took the village they lived in and stuck tail on the end um, they did that retroactively because they said what styles have you got so they went oh, I don't know uh, I live in Tamari so let's say Tamari you know that, that was what that was, that's what they did um, so they didn't really have styles as such but because there was an expectation they should have styles uh, Funakoshi and others presented them you see so Funakoshi did this in his, his book and tried to divine these two styles by body type uh, but I don't believe that holds up to close scrutiny and his peers were said no that's just not true that certainly wasn't the, the way it was so uh, should we take that into account when analysing uh, the cutters? definitely not because it's an historical falsehood so that's a fairly straightforward one so the next question is from Elaine uh, Mockabell 
and he said uh, we claim the cutter is for self-defense and most bunkai out there is for one-on-one hand-to-hand combat however we also see that most uh, altercations involve uh, use of weapons so you know how does the cutter address that it's, it's a long time ago now but there, there is a, a podcast on uh, weapons defense where I, I talk about that so that's I'm sure you'll be able to find it wherever you got this podcast from it's certainly on the website if you go to ianabernethy.com um, and then search through the, the podcast listings you'll find it eventually we did it a long time ago but we, we addressed that in that one but but essentially one of the things is like i don't think it matters whether you've got a knife in your hand or not right now obviously you know in terms of damage that can do it does matter and psychologically it matters but technically it doesn't matter if you're controlling a limb to land a punch to the head it doesn't matter whether that has got a, a knife in it or not so if i'm moving the hand away from me and controlling it so it can't hit me by palming it down at the same time as i punch the guy in the head it doesn't matter if he's clasping something in the hand or not uh, i also think that sometimes with the weapon defense we get overly obsessed with defending the weapon so it's always about disarms and stuff like that as i said before it's not weapon defense it's person attack you smash the guy in the head right as hard as you can so his brain gets scrambled and the weapon becomes less of a threat so you need to incapacitate the weapon wielder or you need to get away from it and i think the cat that teaches us those skills and many of the empty hand skills are also applicable to a situation where, where the, uh, the the guy is armed too. And that's something that we should uh, should be drilling. And, and of course, it's true that most people, when they're teaching it, teach it empty-handed. Um, but there's, we should, I think, be teaching it, okay, this is how the same technique would apply if he had a weapon in his hand. Because in a lot of cases, it would be pretty much in the same way. Uh, when it comes to the live practice of weapons, we have four drills in my, my school. So we have a drill where we practice jamming the enemy as attempt to get to a weapon. So jamming on the draw, smash him twice in the head and run off. We have a drill for when the enemy threatens you with the weapon. So he's holding it at arm's length, pointing it out towards you, trying to threaten and intimidate with you. Which again, we slap the arm down, hit him in the head and we run away. Uh, we have a drill for what we call the awkward distance, which is how we deal with the enemy threatening you with the weapon, but it's too close for you to confidently run away. And he's also, with a shift of his body weight, he could be within stabbing range, but he's not quite there at the moment. We have a drill for that. Um, what positions you want to use to position yourself, and then depending on which way it goes, depending on what to do next. And then we have a drill called the mad scramble, which is when the guy's got hold of you and trying to you know pump you with that knife as rapidly and frantically as he can, how to kind of get control over that, that, that arm in such a way that he can stop stabbing you, you know. So we have just four basic, very basic drills. And anyone who's done weapon defense with me, it takes me less than 40 minutes to teach those four drills. And then after that, it's just a matter of uh, practice. I like to keep things really simple when it comes to to weapons. So, um, so yeah, we should be drilling it. And also, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that one-on-one. Well, like, again, when we're doing our bunk guy, we should be doing multiple opponent stuff as well. That doesn't mean simultaneously blocking two attacks from two guys, but it means using the, the bunk eye in a, a way where we're dealing with it in uh, multiple attacker scenarios and scenarios where we've got to defend others and all this kind of stuff as well. So, again, there is a multiple opponents podcast out there as well if you want more uh, detail in there. So definitely should do that. Def- definitely should be including that stuff in practice. And the next one, we've got two related questions, which is from uh, Nicholas NJ and from uh, Ali Wittick. And they're basically, yeah, well, I'll read them both out. So Nicholas's went, he goes, uh, when many uh, practitioners do kata, they believe pulling the non-punching hand to the waist is to gain power and speed. Uh, I believe kata should be modified to pull the non-punching hand to the face, jaw or chest, especially in kata like Giona Hian Yodan. 
um, uh, give some examples of ones that he wouldn't. And he says, uh, thoughts, do you do you think always practicing bringing the hand to the waist is flawed? So if I, if I answer that one, is, is firstly the idea of bringing the hand to the hip for power and speed is just flat out wrong. You know, the, 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 it doesn't really add to power there because that what you're saying there is the one side of my body will be moving away from the target. And there's this idea almost like a, um, a revolving door idea. If I pull sharply backwards on one side, it'll throw the other side forwards. Of course, I mean, that seems like a reasonable argument until you realise, but it still means half the weight's going backwards. That's not what you want. You want all of the weight going forwards into the shot. So I, I think this idea of pulling the hand back to add speed is because people have failed to remember or failed to understand why we're moving the hand to our hip in the first place. The reason you're pulling the hand to the hip is either you're locating the enemy, grabbing him as you hit him, or you're pulling limbs out of the way. So the enemy's flinching trying to protect himself and you pull the arm out of the way and hit. And the most efficient place to pull to, the strongest place, is your hand towards your hip. And you know this if you're a weightlifter. right? If you're doing bent over rows and you pull your hand roughly towards your hip, you can lift a good bit. If you try and pull it out away from you, it's hard. If you try and pull it higher or lower, it's harder. Mechanically, that's the most, that's where you're at your strongest. So that's why the cat encourages us to do that, is pull the hand back to that, that side of the body. I mean, we're saying hip, but you know, everybody's body's different, but we mean the lower part of the torso is the hand pulls, pulls straight back. Now, do I think that pulling the hand to the, the waist is, is flawed always? Well, yes, because if there's nothing in the hand, then the hand should be kept up in a guard so it's ready to clear, it's ready to cover, it's ready to strike. If the hand's got nothing to do, it should be kept up. But if the hand's doing something, it should be doing something. Now, in the cutter, the hands are doing things. So we shouldn't modify the cutter to have a guard up. Right? That's something we should be doing uh, in uh, our fighting drills, more or less. Because the fact is, the hand should be busy. If you've got a hand held up in a guard, it's effectively inactive. When it could be clearing a path for the strike, and it could be telling you where the enemy is. So in close-range self-defense, we want both hands to be busy. And one of the le least effective things that the hand can be doing is being held in a passive guard. It should be active. But if we haven't had the chance to engage it yet, we'll have it up, right? If we're sparring or fighting, we're often further apart, which means that can hands can't latch on. So in that case, when you're fighting one another, you would have your guard up. But I wouldn't modify the cutter because the cutter is looking at close-range applications. So... Um, that's that's my my take on that. Um, Ali has a related question where he says, you know, I says I teach from the hip punches for solo training, but when it comes to pad and impact work, I teach boxing style punches, which mirror your punching, hip movement, and footwork. Uh, these boxing style punches feel so natural. Why do you think the founders of karate enforce the formal to the hip punching? Well, I think that's for the same reason because when they're looking at the the range that we're talking about, so we're talking about self-defense range, within arm's length, the hands are better being active than passive. So when they do their impact work, they mimic this by pulling the hand to the hip. So that's grabbing him or it's got hold of him in some way. The hand is active, not passive, uh, it's active. Now, when I do my pad drills, we also do drills, if you have a look on the YouTube ones, where we're pulling the arm out of the way and we're making use of the hikate. There's quite a lot of the kata-based pad drills where the non-striking hand is being used in a hikate-style fashion. But when we're doing the fighting pad drills, often then we've got a bit of a bigger distance and then the guard is up. So I don't think there's a universal right-wrong here. It's what's the most effective use of the non-striking hand in that moment for the objective that we've got. So if the hand has nothing to do, 
then it's better being up. If it's got something to do, it's better doing that. The cat assumes that the hand is active because it's looking at close range self-protection where it's better having the hand active. And when we're doing our pad drills, we should do fighting base drills and self-defense drills before the hand is active where the arms are up. And then we have ones where the arms are down. So I, I teach... Um, if, like you can say boxing style if you like you can teach boxing style punches for the fighting side of things and then i have the counter base punches for the self-defense side of things so the next question we have is from john brinder and john asks should we teach the bunkai drills uh before the kata so that the solo performance reinforces what they've already learned in the bunkai drills uh, and i think you, you, there's a few different options with that some people teach the bunkai first so all the bunkai drills for a given kata and then they teach the kata at the end of all of that and then other people teach uh, the kata all the way through get the student up to a reasonable standard with the kata and then start breaking down the applications and, and I, a lot of it i think it depends on how you teach and how you work within your given dojo and so so long as ultimately you've learned the full package i don't think it really matters but my, my preference is to teach them pretty much side by side so for example the first kata my students learn is pin and shodan so the first um seven moves of that so you've got the uh one two three to the the left one two three to the right uh turn and the arm comes up as you do a front kick and short account the arm goes straight and they do a side kick that bit so those first seven moves uh they'll learn that and then immediately we teach them the uh bunkai drill that goes along with that which is our first bunkai drill so we teach the kata in discrete parts and we teach a bunkai drill that goes with that discrete part so they'll learn the first part of the kata and the bunkai drill that goes with it we'll let let then we'll add on the second part of the kata and they'll learn the bunkai drill that goes with that now as to which we teach first again they'll be both will be taught within the same 15 minute period but sometimes we'll say okay let's show you the next part of the kata and now let's do the drill and other times we'll say okay let's here's the next bunkai drill and here's the part of the kata that goes with it so again i don't really think that matters but personally i prefer to teach them side by side because then the connection i feel is at its strongest so people understand right i understand how the kata is being a repository of knowledge and i understand how the kata is providing me a, a supplementary form of solo practice uh, I, th I think when you, you put those two um together side by side like that that's when it works best so that would be my preference and i think that's the best way to ensure that uh the students uh, see the kata and the bunkai has been you know very strongly linked is that they learn them together side by side would be my answer to uh, to that one and the next question is from Tim Webb, and Tim says, Can one develop their own self-protection system based solely on the Nihanshi series of kata? So that's an emphatic yes. When it comes to the physical side of things, it's an emphatic yes. Because the Nihanshi, uh, even the, the first one alone, is a, a is a complete system, physical system. And that with the second two, in my view, uh, Nidan and Sandan providing commentary on the first. But they are a, a complete combative system in and of itself, definitely. They were designed to be that way. So, so, so therefore, um, the only thing that's lacking is the non-physical elements that you, that you need to teach you know so um the de-escalation drills and all that kind of stuff escape stuff awareness things that kind of stuff but in terms of physical side of things you can absolutely do that because that's what the nahanshi series are that the kata are a summary of a complete combative system in and of itself so yeah nahanshi series can definitely be their own uh, uh, civilian self-protection system so next question is Steve Carroll. He asks, which of the traditional kata would I rate most highly and why? Well, they're all good. I wouldn't want to put one above the other. I think it's mainly down to how they're approached and practiced. Uh, but if I was to choose one, it would be Nahanshi, uh, what most people would call Nahanshi Shodan. It, it strikes me as an incredibly deep kata. Uh, one of my training partners once referred to it as the DNA of combat. 
<laughs> which I thought was brilliant and pretty much reflects it. I also like it because as someone who travels a lot, um, I can do that kind of pretty much anywhere. And as some of you know, I, I had a situation where I, I uh, dislocated my knee once doing uh, throwing practice. It was it took a year before I could move on it properly again. And um, uh, during that time, the only cutter I could do was Nahanchi uh, without the return and wave kicks because there's no pivots in it. So I always say when all the other cutters abandoned me, Nahanchi stood by me. So Nahanchi's the one I personally rate the highest. Stephen also asks, uh, which of the cutter, in my view, have the most applicable bunkai to t- today's uh, real-world threats? i.e. mugging, assault, stabbing, all that kind of stuff. I, I, again, all of them. I, I, I don't think that, again, nothing's changed. Human beings have still got you know two arms, two legs. We've still got the same hormonal system. The criminal strategy is still the most effective one. You know, you use surprise groups and overwhelming aggression to try and dominate. It, not, not a lot has changed. As I say, it's not like we've grown a tentacle or a third arm. It's still the same stuff. So I, I, the, what, the one thing we have to be mindful of is teaching it within a modern context. So we can make use of modern training methods. Like, for example, I use a lot of focus drills as part of my bunkai practice, which obviously the old masters couldn't do because they didn't have them. So we can train katas in different ways. We've got to be mindful of modern-day legal considerations but when it comes to physical technique i think you can pick any pretty much any traditional cat that you want and you can break that down and find the things that you, you need within there so yeah they're all good uh, tris wolven uh, came asked me by email he said uh, i have seen kata performed where the karate can make a lot of noise on every move uh, what's your view on this uh, they shouldn't so that by noise is uh, the endless kiaying on every single move um, is not good you see that in some modern uh, like like freestyle kata competitions and that's that's i hate it hate it hate it hate it uh, and the other one is this kind of you know slapping of geese to make a nice neat noise you know again shouldn't do that you should do the kata from a combative standpoint uh, back in the day when i was kata judging we were told to mark people down if there were any signs of that so excessive breathing uh, through the nose or mouth slapping the the gee with the hikate this kind of stuff trying to make uh, a fake fake noises and we were, we were told to turn the sound down mentally because they're probably trying to disguise bad technique with it uh, I, I think that again i'm not involved in the kata judging anymore but i guess we must have moved away from that because you see it a lot more you do see people slapping geese and stuff and i had one of it was quite funny i recently had one of our uh, dan grades at the club uh, was commenting that he'd watched a, um, a kata competition on youtube and he said he couldn't believe that every time they move there's this, this crack 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 he says you know you get that obviously when you do kata but he says really extreme he says seems like they have these geese that turns the sound up i said no 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 i said if you watch close they said the slapping the gee I said watch they do it like this so i did a few basic punches and, and brought my hikate in at slightly the wrong angle so it slaps against my gee as it pulls towards my hip <laughs> and he just laughed you know so he did it a few times anyway let class begins we start with line up and i can just hear in the middle of this class it's snap 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 and i look across and it's the same black belt you know smiling at me just making use of the same method right so you can do it pretty much immediately but it shouldn't be done and and back in my day and i appreciate that was a long time ago uh, but i was um the tarmy chief at british level you know i'd been involved in some international level competitions kata judging and we were told anybody doing that you should mark them down it's not something anyone should do uh, and Terry Mungsfield, on a related question, Terry asks, uh, during kata, why limit the number of ki? For instance, in most Shotokan kata, there are two ki. Why not more or even zero? Uh, one thing with the ki's is we've got to remember they've only very recently been set. 
So uh, in Shotokan, they're, they're quite well defined where they should be. So pretty much through Nakayama's literature is where, okay, this is where we're going to carry on these moves. And it tends to be fairly consistent throughout um, Shotokan. In other styles, you will see variations on the Kiai points. People Kiai different places. So, for example, I think when the way I do Pinan Sandan has three in it. Uh, I've got other katas that only have one in them. For example, uh, the way we do Chinto, we just Kiai on the final punch. You know, so there's there's different schools do different things. And back in the day, you just Kiai basically when you felt like it, when it was felt to be appropriate. So I, I think the only reason they've been set is just because somebody decided, wouldn't it be all nice if we all kiai on the same places and that has happened quite firmly within within Shotokan and the other styles maybe not so much because they've never quite has been uh, robustly defined um, but so you will see variations where people kiai at various points so yeah you know just kiai when you feel like it's one option uh, but again in our, in our my school we have set kiai places uh, but it's again these were the ones that were as were passed on to me some cutters we have three some cutters we have four um, some we have two and some we have one so again it it just depends on the, the cutter and the style, I think. Martial arts fun fact number 15. The word nunchaku translates as self-inflicted head trauma. So we now have a couple of questions relating to uh, impact drills. Uh, so the first one's from Tony Smith and this came in via email. And Tony uh, said, in your recent video on restricting pad drills, I noticed that you often struck the pad with a kind of round hooking punch, which is not that unusual, but you had your fist facing palm out so that the back of your knuckles made the contact. I'd be interested to know what advantages this may have over what I consider to be the more conventional front of knuckle strike. So that, that, that's right. So as I see, there's three key positions you can have your hand for a hook. So if I try and describe them, obviously it's easy to show. So the first one is like the vertical fist, which would have the thumb on the top, the little finger down, and the inside of the fist facing you, the finger side of the fist facing you, which is like great for close range hooks, right? You've then got the next one where we've got the thumb side facing you, the little finger side of the fist away from you, and the back of the hand facing up, the finger side of the fist facing down, all right? Which is the kind of hook punch we see in a lot of kata. And then you've got the one that Tony's referring to, which you do see a lot of in that video, where the thumb side is down, the back of the hand is effectively facing you, the little finger is up, and the, the palm side or the finger side the, of the fist is away from you. Now, I, I don't see that one as having any uh, inherent advantages over the others, but it just depends on what's appropriate for what you're trying to hit, specifically how far that target is away from you. So if you think of the, the first one we mentioned with the vertical fist, that's great if the uh, enemy is really close to you. It's a lovely way to throw a hook when they're close. But if they move slightly further away, right, and I try and keep the fist formation the same, I'm now going to have to either um, bend my wrist a lot, so I'm trying to hit with those front two knuckles still, or I keep my wrist in line, in which case I'll be hitting with the middle knuckles. So not the, the knuckles we normally hit with, the next one's down. We'll call them the middle knuckles, right? Which again is going to damage my hand and be an ineffective punch. It's the same when you've got the one where you've got the horizontal fist. You know, the one with the back of the hand facing upwards. The one we see in Kata quite a lot. Great for that mid-range hook. But again, if they're slightly further away, I'm having to kick my wrist a lot. Or I'm going to end up hitting with the index finger thumb side, the corner of the fist, which can be very painful to me, and again is ineffective. 
But if I turn the fist right the way over, I can strike with those large two knuckles again, um, and there's no danger about hitting with the wrong part of the fist. Now, the reason you don't see it very often is simply the fact it's illegal in boxing. Uh, in, in boxing, you have to hit with the front of the fist. You can't roll it over and hit with that like ridge or the, the, the back of the fist with it in that way. Um, it's illegal, so you don't see them do it. But as Karateka, we have no such restriction. So on that video, if you look at the restricted punching one, uh, the rules of the drill are your partner's not allowed to give you any square targets, and you know, you're in compromised in some way, you're off balance or sitting down or lying on your back or whatever it happens to be. So often the distancing is not quite right. So what I did on all of those was I just hit it with what I felt was the most appropriate part of my fist to hit it with. So as a result, a lot of those, the fist is turned fully over. The advantages in, in that scenario is that it will make sure that I make contact with the front two knuckles and it means that my wrist is aligned correctly in a way that if I tried to do it with any of the other ones, it would not have been. So it's not that it's inherently better, it's just more suited uh, for certain angles and certain positions. And, and I think that's something we, we need to practice because it works with the uppercuts too, right? If you think of the, the, the back of the hand being away from you is how the standard uppercut is thrown. And that's a good way to throw the uppercut when the enemy is very close. But if you've got a little bit more distance, let's say the enemy's bent over and he's face down, you want uppercut towards the face, you, again, you can end up hitting with that middle knuckle again, you know, with, with hurting the, the, the hands, the, uh, the middle knuckles, the main joints of your fingers. We don't want to do that. But if you turn the hand over... So that side of it's down, again, you'll hit with those front, uh, those uh, two knuckles again. You'll hit with the strong part of the fist. Again, it's in, illegal in boxing, but we do see that strike in like uh, MP Kata. You've got that Agizuki, that rising shot. So, and it's way more powerful than people think it's going to be. We, we I teach it quite a lot at seminars when we do pad works. And for those who've never done it on the pads before, they're normally quite shocked at how much force it can generate. So it's always a matter of I need to hit with the right part of my fist, depending on the enemy's position and depending on my position relative to the enemy as well. So um, it's important to mix those stuff so we don't get into the way of trying to hit with a one-size-fits-all fist position and then damaging our hands or hitting uh, ineffectively as a, as a result. Uh, the next question we have is from Chris Holloway. Again, that came in by email. So he asked me if I've got any suggestions for practical pad drills that relate to Katabunkai that, uh, for children. Uh, and and th I think when it comes to children, um, and of course we could have included this in the, the children's section as well, but I thought it would be better placed here. Uh, for children, we need to remember that the bones are not fully formed. They're still growing. So no one should be getting children to smash the hands uh, with force into pads because it'll, it'll damage their hands in the longer term. So I'm not a great believer in children hitting things hard. We want nice soft pads for them to hit so they're not hitting anything hard. And we also want to make sure they've got suitable gloves on as well that support the wrists for them and, and make sure that the knuckles aren't getting damaged in any way. And also we encourage them to get the right shape and the right flow. But we're not looking, and accuracy of course, but we're not looking for massive impact from under-18s because the bones aren't fully formed yet. And if we do that, we're going to cause them problems in the, in the longer term. So that would be one generic point I'd throw straight out there. And the other thing, it's just like we'd cut a bunkai generally for kids as well it has to be uh, age appropriate and it has to be appropriate to what they're trying to do so i would just try and keep them simple just let them learn how to use the pads let them learn some some basics so simple things uh get the partner to put one pad in the way of the other pad and get the child used to pulling the the pad that's in the way out of the way so they can hit the pad that's behind it always difficult to describe these things but i think you get that idea and then that encourages them to use the hikate 
So they're not just punching with and having the hand pulled to the hip for no reason. They're thinking of clearing and hitting targets. Simple things like that will help the children realise, okay, that's what I'm doing in Makata. Because the, the thing with kids is that they're going to do one of two things. They'll either quit uh, martial arts altogether, in which case you hope that they got something valuable out of it and something that's going to serve them in the longer term, whether it's you know a bit of self-confidence or a desire to keep on exercising or whatever it happens to be. So they'll quit and you just hope they got something good out of it. Or they keep on training. And if they keep on training, eventually they're going to be adults. So with the children's training, to me, it's not about making them effective fighters. It's about giving them skills that are appropriate to their age that are beneficial to them generally, and that we can build upon later on. So nice, simple pad drills, which relate back to the cutter, which have the hiccates working for them, uh, which are teaching them how to place a pad, how to do a pad drill, but we take the impact out because we're aware that we're working with, uh, with young bodies. Uh, so they were the impact drills questions. Martial arts fun fact 107. The word obi is commonly understood to be the Japanese word for a martial arts belt. However, in truth, it is an acronym meaning obese belly indicator. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found the discussions interesting. So tomorrow we look at self-defense, uh, training, uh, teaching children and female self-defense. And the day after that, we'll be looking at general karate questions, cross-training, pressure points and the miscellaneous questions. So thanks once again to, for you to listening. Thanks again to everyone who submitted questions. Uh, again, really good. Uh, give me great uh, things to talk about. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to part one. Okay, I'll be back with part two tomorrow. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye.